Well, good morning and welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here and I'm grateful to be able to gather with you this morning. Uh, last week, we jumped back into our 2 Corinthians sermon series called Old Made New. Mark did a recap kind of sermon uh, last Sunday and today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 and Veronica is going to be reading our scripture this morning. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God of mercy and God of grace, we give you thanks for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for your kindness towards us. God, we thank you that it's this gift that we get to partake of today in gathering together as your people. God, it's, you, you saw fit for it to be a good thing for us to do this for our own soul, for our mind to be encouraged, to be strengthened in faith, no matter where we find ourselves this morning. And so God, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we open up your living and active word, God, that you would do an encouraging work today, <clears throat> a transforming work today, that you'd help us to see Christ for the Savior, the amazing Redeemer that he is. And that by that, you would transform our lives for your glory, our good, and the good of others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, it comes pretty natural for us in life to be imitators. Starts off at a young age. We maybe look to someone that we look up to, perhaps an older sibling, and we watch them, and then we copy them. Now, if you were that older sibling, you didn't always find that as an encouraging or good thing in your life. But as Oscar Wilde famously said, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Imitation, though, doesn't stop when we get older. It can continue on throughout life. Maybe you look to a mentor or a peer that excels in certain things and seek to imitate them. Now, we're often fine with imitation in our life when we're the ones that are deciding to do it, but when someone else tells us to imitate someone else, we oftentimes don't like that. We've probably heard some variation of this line before, why can't you be more like so-and-so? As we come to our text today in 2 Corinthians 8, we see in some ways Paul kind of seems to be doing that, but he's not doing it in a way to manipulate or to denigrate the Corinthians or us for that matter. He's doing it to motivate us by grace. See, as followers of Jesus, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, it, it can be and should be encouraged 
to, for us to actually look to others to be an example, to other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why community is so important. We're not meant to live this life in journey with Jesus on our own. And in our text today, Paul gives us two wonderful examples for us to follow. But the interesting thing is what the Corinthians and what we are called to imitate in our lives. Radical generosity. Radical generosity. In fact, it's so important that Paul spends two chapters in this letter talking about this. It's about 15% of the letter Paul spends talking about money and resources and what we do with them. But that shouldn't really be too surprising to us. After all, the Bible spends a whole lot of time talking about money. Jesus spent a lot of time teaching and talking about it as well. Why? Why is that the case? Because all of us, including the Corinthians, can struggle to know what it is that we're supposed to do with the resources that we have. We live in a world that tells us all kinds of different things to do with those things. We also need to look to God's word to see what God says to do with it. You know what? It's kind of hard to talk about. Generally speaking, we don't like talking about money. We don't like talking about giving and generosity. But you know what? God cares for your heart. And God cares for your soul. And money, at times, can often have a tight grip on both of those things. This seems to be the case for the Corinthians. Last week, Mark said in our series overview that Paul has written a letter to them before. He's even gone to visit them, and neither of those things went particularly well. Now he's in Macedonia, a town, an area not too far away from Corinth, and he's writing to them again. This is actually the fourth letter that he's writing to them, and it's a very unique and personal letter. And in it, Paul spends most of his time defending his calling, defending his ministry. Because see, the Corinthians had looked at Paul and said, you know what, we're not really that impressed with you anymore. You're suffering, so you must be doing something wrong. Things aren't going as well as we think they should be going for you, so something must not be right. And because of that, they're tempted to reject Paul and reject the message that he preaches. So Paul has laid it all out there in this letter, and we're going to continue to see him do this as we finish it up over these next few months. But in chapter 7, he actually encourages and commends the Corinthians. See, Titus, has a fellow worker with Paul, has gone and spent time with them, and he's come back, and he's given this report to Paul about the Corinthians. And so Paul encourages them in that. But here, he presses in a bit more. See, they weren't impressed with Paul, but they were pretty impressed with themselves. They thought they were pretty good at everything that they had and the gifts they'd been given. But because Paul loves them and because Paul cares for them, he wants to point out a possible blind spot, an area of needed growth, their generosity. Now, why is he doing that in this letter? Well, we have to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul told them to do something. He told them to set aside money every week in order to give. And in particular, to give to the struggling church in Jerusalem. And they'd made this commitment to do that, but they hadn't followed through on it. They hadn't done it yet. In chapter 9, we'll see next week that he's worried that they're going to come to pick up this gift and the Corinthians won't have anything to give. See, Paul's concerned. He's concerned that while they excel in many things, they don't seem to be excelling in generosity. Which for Paul is directly connected to their understanding of the gospel of grace. So what we'll see in our text today is that Paul's going to exhort the Corinthians. He's going to challenge the Corinthians. And because this is God's word to us as well, he's going to exhort and encourage and challenge us as well. 
Because maybe for some of us, this can be a blind spot in our own lives. What do we do with the money and resources God has given to us? Are we generous people? But what he's going to exhort and challenge us in is that it's not guilt. It's not obligation, but radically generous grace that motivates. Radically generous grace that empowers radical generosity. Listen, I know talking about money can be a touchy subject for us because a lot of us are coming into this at very different places. Some of you have a sensitive conscience when it comes to this. And as soon as somebody starts talking about giving or generosity, you're like, oh man, I'm going to get crushed today. And I'm going to feel more guilty about what I'm not doing. I'm not doing enough. And so you're already kind of, oh, what's he going to say this morning? Others of you, maybe if you don't call yourself a Christian or you're new to church or coming back, you're like, great. Of course you guys are talking about money. That's all the church ever talks about. Others of you still, maybe this morning, are putting up a wall, but actually need the spirit to prick your conscience this morning. But listen, no matter how you're coming into this, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to open wide your mind, open wide your heart, and to receive what God has for you today. Because this is God's good and gracious word to you. To trust the spirit this morning. That the Spirit wants to do something in your life. He wants to do something in your heart. He wants to do something in our church and to believe that it's for your good and it's for your joy. So let's dive into 2 Corinthians 8 this morning and may God bless the preaching of his word. As I mentioned, Paul spends a significant amount of time talking about giving and challenging the Corinthians on this. He spends chapters 8 and 9 on this and so we're going to take our time as well. We're going to take the next three Sundays to walk through these two chapters. So in some ways, this is kind of a mini-series within a series. Today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, as you just heard read. And what we see is Paul gives his exhortation, his encouragement in verses 6 through 8. But that exhortation is sandwiched by two examples. So that's going to be our outline today. Example, exhortation, example. And then we'll close out with some implications for us. Let's start with an example, the Macedonian churches. We see this in verses one through five. Paul has spent most of his letter talking about the Corinthians and talking about himself, but here he brings up a different group of people, these churches in Macedonia. The churches in Macedonia are the church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, and the church at Berea. Now, what does he say about them? Look at verse one. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What Paul's doing here is he's seeking to encourage the Corinthian church with a report about these other churches. He's trying to tell them God's at work, not just here in this local place in Corinth, but he's at work all over the place. You know what? We should be encouraged to hear things like that too. To know that God's not just at work in this church here in Fairfax, but he's at work all over Northern Virginia, all over the DC metro area, all over the world. When we hear about other churches doing good things and God at work within them, that shouldn't be discouraging to us. It should bolster our faith. Give us a hopefulness that God is at work and on the move and we get to be a part of something way bigger than we are. So what is it that he wants the Corinthians? What is it that he wants us to know about the Macedonians? He wants them to know about their generosity. Look at verses two through three. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, even beyond their means of their own accord. Did you notice the strong language he uses to describe their generosity? 
as he's talking about these Macedonian churches, as he says, a severe test of affliction. They're going through difficulty, persecution in some way. Things are hard for them right now. They have severe tests of affliction, but in the midst of that, they have an abundance of joy. They're overflowing in joy. But at the same time, they also are dealing with extreme poverty. They don't have a whole lot. Maybe it's been taken away from them. Maybe they haven't been able to get jobs or opportunities because of their following of Jesus. And it ends with all of that overflowing in a wealth of generosity. That's a strange formula. If you're writing a math equation on this, you have severe test of affliction plus abundance of joy plus extreme poverty equals overflowing wealth of generosity. That seems a little strange. I mean, they're not abundant in money. They're abundant in joy. And their abundant joy leads them to give extravagantly, which furthers their joy. Here again, Paul flips the script on the Corinthians and maybe us as well. This isn't what we would expect as an example of faithful giving, an example of faithful generosity. See, as a model of generosity, Paul doesn't put forward a wealthy, well-off group of churches. He doesn't put forward a group of churches that are seeing lots of great things happen, experiencing little problems and having great success. These aren't the people speaking at conferences or having books written about how great they are and all the great things that they're doing. Paul, as an example, puts forward a group of churches that are experiencing great difficulty, who are actually weak from the world's perspective, not successful, who are not well off, but who nevertheless give. Not out of their abundance, not out of the leftovers after they've built an extravagant life, a comfortable lifestyle. No, they give out of their poverty, Paul says, even beyond their means. Now think about this. If someone had $10,000 and gave a thousand of that away, man, that's, that's a lot of money. Someone with $100,000 could also give a thousand dollars away. Same amount of money, but very different starting place. Very different starting place. Why in the world would the Macedonians do this? Well, it wasn't out of guilt. It wasn't out of obligation. Paul tells us, verse three, they gave of their own accord. And then into verse four, he says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were begging Paul to participate. They were begging and pleading with him for this opportunity to be a part of what God is doing. They wanted to partner with Paul in his gospel mission and ministry. They wanted to come alongside and serve other churches who were struggling and having difficulty right now. I mean, I've seen this happen in life and ministry. You have a church that's dealing with their own difficulties. They don't have a lot. And they decide, you know what? We want to help that other church that's also dealing with difficulties. I've seen church plants who don't have much money say, you know what? God has blessed us. And so we're going to give money to other church plants because we want to see them thrive. We want to see them grow. I mean, they want to be a part of what God is up to here, coming alongside and serving the brothers and sisters. They didn't do this because it was the right thing to do. They didn't do it because it was a good thing to do. The reason they're doing this is because they saw it as a privilege to be a part of what God was up to. They did it because God had changed their lives. Look at verse five. In this, Paul says, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So we have to understand something about Macedonian culture and the church here. Being generous would have been out of the norm for them. Maybe at times the elite or wealthy would give, but it was really just an act of show that people would think well of them because of how generous they were. 
But it wasn't the norm for people to do that, certainly not when they were experiencing suffering. But God changed their lives. Jesus invaded their lives. I don't have time this morning to go back and and recount how he's done that, but I encourage you this week, go read Acts 16 and 17. That's where we hear the story of these churches coming into being in this group, this motley crew of, uh, of a rich woman and a slave girl and a prison guard all coming together to plant a church. It's amazing. So now they've given themselves to God. They've given themselves to the advancement of the gospel and to Paul and his ministry, which means that they want to give away their money. This is the effect of grace in their lives. See, God's grace in your life doesn't just save you from your sin. God's grace transforms your life from one degree of glory to another to be more and more like Jesus. Here again is an example of God's power made perfect in weakness. This is true for them and it's true for you. It's a beautiful picture of churches supporting churches. It isn't a picture of obligatory, perfunctory, run-of-the-mill generosity as if they're just checking a box off. They aren't looking for a cap or a ceiling. They aren't saying, well, like, what's enough to count for us to be considered generous? No, they're saying, I want to I wanna go beyond that. I want to give beyond my means. I want to be a part of what you're doing. It's an example of radical generosity. Radical generosity that's motivated by radical grace. Paul wants the Corinthians to see that. He wants you to see that and be encouraged to go and do likewise, which leads to his exhortation. We see an exhortation, excel in the grace of giving in verses six through eight. Look at verse six. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. This is the whole point of giving the example of the Macedonians. Titus had been with the Corinthians. Now he was back with Paul giving this report. And what Paul learns from Titus is that the Corinthians haven't done what they said they were going to do. They haven't collected money to give to the church in Jerusalem. So now Paul is sending Titus back with this letter to encourage them to to do what they said they were going to do, to complete this act of grace like the Macedonians. But he doesn't say just complete it. He wants them to excel in it. Look at verse 7. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, different scholars have different takes on this. Some think it's a little tongue in cheek the way that Paul's talking about this. Because we have to remember the Corinthians have a high view of themselves. They think they're pretty great. And they are actually strong at a lot of different spiritual things in faith and speech and knowledge, etc. Paul says, but most of those things they're strong in are activities that tend to be centered on them. What they seem to be weak in are those that benefit those outside of their church. That can be a temptation for anyone. It could be a temptation for any church to turn in and serve self instead of looking at how we can serve others. And when it comes to giving away, we're holding on to all that we have. We tend to think that we're doing okay in that area of life. So we decide to focus our attention on other areas to work on. But notice Paul says to excel in this, excel in it, go beyond where you currently are at. Don't be satisfied with the state of your generosity right now, move forward in it. 
See, this too is a gift of grace to be desired and to be pursued. This too is a gift of grace from God to participate in the work of grace he's doing in the lives of others, which is exactly what Paul encouraged them toward. As you excel in so many things, excel also in the grace of radical generosity. I love that it says in verse eight that it isn't a command. Look at verse eight. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Paul doesn't want to guilt them into doing this. He doesn't appeal to their will. He doesn't appeal to their emotions. Paul goes after their heart on this. Their generosity actually evidences a changed life, that they really do love God and love others more than they love themselves. See, Paul wants them to be radically generous because they, like the Macedonians, understand that they are floored by the radical grace they've received, which leads to the second and ultimate example of generosity, the example, Jesus. Look at verse nine. Paul writes, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. I mean, what an amazing verse. Take time this week to think on this verse. Christ, the pre-existent son, that's who he's talking about here, who's existed for all eternity with the Father and the Spirit, who had anything and everything, all glory and perfect community with the Father. He existed in that time, but chose to come to us as one of us to rescue us, to take on our humanity, to enter into this broken world. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says, though he was rich, yet for whose sake? For your sake, he became poor. He entered into the brokenness. Scripture tells us he had no place to lay his head. He wasn't looked on and thought of well by others, ultimately leading to his arrest and false trial and crucifixion on a cross. He became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That as Jesus went to the cross, his hands and feet nailed to those wooden beams, the wrath of God was poured out on him. As we sang just a few moments ago, he died your death for you rescuing you from your sin, taking all of your shame on himself so that you could be rich, not rich in material wealth. There's no prosperity gospel, no rich in grace and glory, being in communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Christ exchanged everything he had for you so that you could have everything that he has. Romans 8 tells us we have the same inheritance as Jesus with the Father. We have everything that's Christ has become yours because of what he did for you. He came to rescue, he came to redeem, he came to set you free. Now, because of that, you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus are a child of God, a citizen of the kingdom of God. Listen, this isn't about money. This is about Jesus living life with him and for him, finding your life in him. And so if you're not yet a Christian, if you don't yet call yourself a follower of Jesus, I hope that you can see in verse nine that God has made a way for you to be rescued, made a way for you to be redeemed, made a way for you to be made whole, that nothing this world promises you can actually accomplish. Only Jesus can do that. So if you haven't placed your faith in him, I call you, implore you to do that now, even in this moment, pray, God, save me. God, save me. For those of us that are already followers of Jesus, I want us to see what he's pointing out to the Corinthians, what he's pointing out to us, that if you've re- that you have received grace upon grace, not because you deserved it, but because Jesus was radically generous toward you. 
radically generous towards you. What's Paul's point? The Macedonians are an example of radical generosity, but Jesus is the example of radical generosity. And not only the example, but the very means of becoming and being radically generous. See, throughout these two chapters, Paul calls financial giving an act of grace because giving for the advancement of the gospel, giving for the needs of others is only truly and genuinely possible because God's undeserved gift of grace has come to them, has come to you. This level of generosity, this overflowing generosity, this radical generosity, it's not born out of goodwill or being a good person. This kind of generosity can only come from a resurrected and remade life, following a resurrected and reigning king. It comes from being a new creation where the old has passed away and the new has come. But this is where you and I can struggle for us personally and corporately, because this new life we have in Christ is at odds with the old life. Like the Corinthians, you and I find ourselves living in a world that is set against God and his gospel. And the reason for this is because the kingdom of God is upside down. It's inverted from the kingdom of this world. The ways of Jesus are not the ways of the world. And so when the world is telling you that all you have is for your benefit, all you have is to make you happy, Jesus tells us it's more blessed, literally more happy to give than to receive. When the world tells you that all you have is yours, it belongs to you, God's word shows us that all we have has been given to us by God. He's the owner of all things. We are merely managers of those things. And one of the things that God calls us to do with his resources is to be radically generous. That's Paul's point with the Corinthians. Christ voluntarily and willingly laid down his life for undeserving people. Now you too have the opportunity to voluntarily sacrifice for the sake of others and the advancement of the gospel. Radically generous grace motivates and empowers radical generosity. And this isn't a command, Paul says, but it is an invitation for their joy, for our joy. What's what Paul gets at in verse 10 and 11. He says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Did you catch what he said? He said, this benefits you. This benefits you, not in a self-serving way, not so you can pat yourself on the back and think that you're great. It benefits you because it's freeing. It benefits you because it's joy producing to say, God, all I have is yours. What do you want me to do with it? He wants the Corinthians to understand this for their own good and for the good of others. See, when you're radically generous in a response to the radical grace you've received, your generosity becomes a gift of grace to serve others, to bless others, to see disciples made, churches planted, needs met. The Corinthians got this at some level, but they hadn't followed through. They had good intentions, but they hadn't actually collected anything. We're going to spend some time talking about that next week. But what we have to see now is that Paul is discipling them here. He's helping them follow Jesus by pointing them to Jesus. 
It's because of their new life in Christ that they can now live a new way for Christ. He's helping them see an implication of the gospel. But like I said, this isn't just for the Corinthians, it's for us too. So to close our time, I want to give us some implications. We're really just, really just one for our life and for our church. I'm grateful for the generosity of this church. Many of you have and continue to be very, very generous, both in giving to the church and then using your resources to bless and serve others outside of the church as well. But I don't want us to miss what the scripture might be showing us, what the spirit might be doing in us as individuals and as a church. Because see, regardless of how generous you have been, regardless of how generous you might be, all of us are tempted to get caught up in the culture we live in. I mean, we find ourselves in a very affluent area. The five richest counties in the, in the whole country are all in this area. I think Fairfax County is the second richest in the entire country. Now, I know that doesn't necessarily apply to everyone. And some of you are in need. So don't hear me saying that this applies to everyone. But for most of us, that's the context we find ourselves in. And so it can be tempting for us to try and keep up with that. We can be tempted to be generous, but only when it's comfortable for us, only when it's convenient for us, always with an eye on getting more for ourselves. We can struggle to be sacrificial, having to say no to certain things so that we can use our resources to bless others. We can struggle to excel. Have you guys heard of John D. Rockefeller, the great oil tycoon of the early 20th century? He said to have been and still hold the spot of the richest American ever. His estimated net worth at the time of his death adjusted for inflation over the years is somewhere around $375 billion. That's silly money. Like I can't wrap my mind around that. Just to give you some context right now, Jeff Bezos is up to $211 billion. So Rockefeller had almost double what Bezos has right now. Someone once asked Rockefeller, okay, how much money is enough? His answer? One more dollar than I have. One more dollar than I have. He's being tongue in cheek on that. See, though Rockefeller was known as a very, very philanthropic man, the sentiment he expressed hits the nail on the head of the deep heart issue that money can have on our lives. We just need a little bit more. Then I can be generous. Just a little bit more. Then I can go do these things. We can be tempted like the Corinthians towards generosity that isn't sacrificial, that isn't excelling, instead of grace-motivated generosity that the world would see as radical. That the world would look at you and say, you're a fool. Why would you do that with your money? I know I can be tempted to fall into that category of, ah, what's, uh, this seems probably enough. I can look at resources that I get and think, well, if I can make my life a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more easy, a little bit better for me. Let me do that first. And then I'll figure out if I have some extra that I can use for something else. But that's why this text and many others like it are so helpful for us. They stop us in our track, at least for a moment, at least for a moment to consider how are we using what we've been given. They help us to consider where our hope and our treasure truly is. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul talks about money and resources. He says this, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Or to put some imagery to it, as one pastor said, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You can't take it with you. 
See, personal prosperity can devour the Christian. It can devour the church. If we don't place our wealth and our riches and our things in the proper category, that these are God's gifts to us to be used for him and his glory rather than our things to be used for us and our glory. We have to be honest with ourselves. We can become so easily enamored, as another pastor says, with the stuff of future garage sales. Right? Like we got to have the latest. We got to have the best. And we get caught up in it. And we start to give our worship to it. And we place our hope in it. And putting all of our energy into acquiring more of it. Listen, we have more than so many. So many around the world. And it's okay. It's okay to have a house. It's okay to have these resources. It's okay to live in this area. Acts 17, God has determined the time and place in which you live. You're here for a reason. You have the job you have. You live where you live because God saw fit for you to be there. So you can give thanks for that. You can give praise and thanks for what God has done. But but in the midst of that, also be praying and scheming, God, how do you want me to use what you've given to me? So I can continue to make much of Jesus. That's Paul's aim for the Corinthians and for us, that we would be generous in using everything he's given to do good and store up for ourselves treasures for the future as we exist with him. So what would it look like for you to excel? What would it look like for us as as a church to excel in radical generosity? How do we work toward getting there and staying there? Well, over the next two weeks, we're going to keep talking about this because Paul keeps talking about it. And within that, we're going to dive into some more practical ways that we can be faithfully generous and cheerfully generous. But today I want to give you one thing. In an article on money that's going to go out in our after service email, there's also some printed copies out in the lobby. Tim Keller, pastor and author, says this. In order to become a gracious, generous person, don't sit down with a calculator. Look to the cross. In other words, if we're going to be radically generous people, we have to come back to verse 9. If we're going to be radically generous people, we have to have a big view of Jesus to see how generous he's been to us, the radical grace we've received. And it's because of that now that you can be radically generous and merciful too. And that's one of my hopes for our church is that we would be marked by a culture of radical generosity that is we think about all that we have, we'd be thinking more and more, God, what do you want us to do? How can we deploy these resources out? God, you've blessed us with so much. How can we give more money away? How can we plant more churches? How can we meet the needs of those that are suffering or marginalized? How can we help families and those, the the lives of the unborn? How can we help those that are struggling with sickness and poverty? How can we go out and do those things? How can we send more missionaries? God, how can we give more away? You know what the crazy thing is? Is as we seek to do that, I trust and believe that God will provide everything we need. We've been given so much. I want our church to be marked by a culture of radical generosity. I mean, this is an invitation for us to be a part of what God is doing in and around the world. To be like the Macedonians, longing to be a part of it all. But we have to understand that a radically generous church is made up of radically generous people. I don't want us just to think in that kind of amorphous way of like, yeah, us, church, let's go. Brothers and sisters, it's your generosity that enables us to be faithful to these things. So this week, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Take time to fix your eyes on your radically generous Savior. 
Go back to verse 9 and read it again. Take time to memorize it and meditate on it. Think about the lavish grace that's been given to you in Christ. Give thanks for that. And pray and repent and scheme for the kingdom of God. Another pastor, Phil Riken, says this. We can scarcely realize what the church could accomplish in the world if we gave our money away for Jesus with the same liberality that Jesus gave his life for us. Brothers and sisters, may we be a radically generous church made up of radically generous people so that we might display the radical grace we've received to a world desperately in need of it.